Father, we praise you this morning in song and the proclamation of your word and the prayers of the saints. Father, let our prayers and proclamations be a sweet-smelling aroma in the heavenlies, O Lord, and may you be pleased with your church this morning who worships you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So be seated this morning and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark this morning, a fairly lengthy passage, but we take the passages as they're given. We don't get to write them or rewrite them, but we do read them and we do dissect them, don't we? So let's go into Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 21 through 43. Big undertaking this morning. So you ready? 21 through 43. Now when Jesus has crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus... She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched me? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear or do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately, the girl arose and walked, 
for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Father, we praise you for the great physician this morning, and we appeal to you for his immediate help, for his touch, Lord, for his word of healing upon those among us who are sick, and for his word of strengthening to all of us in our faith, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord does all these things. And so we read, When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. So the Lord's back in Capernaum. Now what Mark's referring to in the verse here is Jesus and the apostles return from the land of Gadara. Remember the land of Gadara, the land of swine? Very hated by the Jews, off limits, but not to the Lord. (laughs) Now the Lord's exploits in the land of Gadara are a marvelous gospel tale in and of themselves. I preached on that passage many years ago in a sermon entitled, Surviving Storms and Demons. This is the story where Jesus stilled a stormy sea, exercised a demoniac or two, ran a herd of swine over the cliff to their death on on the rocky shore below, and put the fear of God into the inhabitants of that place. And so I give you the context. He was across the sea, which is the Sea of Gennesaret, or or the um, Sea of Tiberias, or a number of other names. Um, But he put the fear of God into the inhabitants of that place. And so much so that they pleaded urgently for him to leave them alone. They wanted Jesus to leave their place. Of course, he took away their livelihood by casting the demons into the swine. You know the story. They say it was the first case of deviled ham in history. And so we read, they began to plead with him to depart from the region. Imagine that. They kicked Jesus out. But he went. You kick him out long enough, he's going to go. And as one group of people could not get far enough away from Jesus, another group could not get close enough. Now there's an ethos in our time that presupposes that unification of people or groups is inherently good. Now I have to tell you, there is some good in being unified. The church is supposed to be unified in doctrine. We're supposed to be what Paul calls of one mind, and that's a good thing. But we're not supposed to be of one mind with just anybody or any philosophy, are we? No, unification is a good thing, but not inherently, all right? And so there's this ethos in our time that unification of all people or groups under any circumstances is good, and that division is inherently bad. You know, we see that in politics all the time. I'm a uniter, not a divider. It's, it's really just rhetoric, and by the way, it always was. We were always a divided country. It's nothing new, just to put my little two cents in there. Um, But we like to be on the side of those who portray the Lord as good. And of course, our God is good and the Lord is good. But if we see this indiscriminate unity as inherently good also, then our good Lord must be a unifier in all cases. And I have to tell you that when we do that, we invent a caricature of the Lord. You know what a caricature is? You ever see uh, political cartoons and they draw a picture of a well-known 
political person. And if his ears are a little large, they make him really big. And you know what I mean? If his mouth is really big, they make it huge. Or, you know, they, they exaggerate the characteristics of the person. It's called the caricature. We must not do that with the Lord. And so when we do that, we invent a caricature of the Lord when we insist that he must be this quintessential unifier. All right? When in the scriptures we see that he's no such thing. And I would say that Mark's juxtaposition, juxtaposition of these two stories is a case in point. The disciples praise the Lord as the son of David, king of Israel. Remember that? But the Pharisees come out and tell them all to shut up. They say that's blasphemy, Luke 19. When he said that all who would have eternal life must eat his flesh and drink his blood, many disciples left. It wasn't a moment of great unification in Israel when he said that. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And they followed him no more. They might as well be in the land of Gadara, in the land of swine. And so he even said to those who remain, he didn't say, run after them and tell them, I'm sorry, get them back here, we need unity. He didn't do any of that. Jesus does not apologize, by the way. And so Jesus said to the twelve, we read, do you not also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And what he's saying is, we don't understand the saying either. But we're staying here because we want to be near you. And we want to learn the meaning of the saying. Because if it comes from you, it's worthwhile. To whom shall we go? You have the words of, of eternal life. And also we've come to believe and to know that you're the Christ, the Son of God. That's a good reason to stay too. When you find out he's the Son of God. And so there was always this mix of believing disciples and unbelieving disciples. And the Lord's earthly ministry was always sifting them out, right? And so we see him doing this very thing in the passage. Even here is Jairus' house. There are those who believe in him. Even in Jairus' house, there's those who believe in Jesus and there's those who ridicule him, right? He removes his detractors from the room where the child lay. Friends, scorners of miracles have no place among workers of miracles. And so only the beloved are invited to witness them. John the Baptist spoke of, he spoke less of unifying the people of God and more of systematically separating to them. He said to the Pharisees, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Imagine that. And then he talked, he said about Christ, he said his winnowing fan is in his hand and he'll thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now people in an agrarian society knew what that meant. There was a threshing floor. It was a wooden floor made for piling the wheat. And they powered a big fan. And they would take their pitchforks and throw their wheat into the air. And the chaff was very light. It was the outer shell of the wheat kernel, and the chaff would blow away into piles outside the threshing floor. Threshing floors were generally on a hill where there was more wind. And the wheat would fall because it was heavier, and it would fall, and it would be gathered up because it was useful, and the chaff was not so useful. So they took the chaff out and burned it. Now, these Pharisees weren't stupid. They knew he was telling them they were the chaff that was to be burned, not exactly a masterful, political, unifying speech. Unless we forget, though, 
Jesus reiterates this thunderbolt from the prophet Micah when he said, Do not think I came to bring peace, but a sword. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now let's not caricature the Lord that it's always about unity and unification. It is not. We may remember that Jesus had told them previously to keep a small boat ready for him in the event that such a crowd might throng him and crush him. And for purposes of his own, he had them sail at night to the, the, to the forbidden land of the Gadarenes, as we've said. And we noted they urged him to leave. And so after asserting his lordship over their demons and over their unclean culture of swine and idolatry, all forbidden in the law of Moses, he obliges them and leaves. He taught the disciples who went out to preach. He said, whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet in protest against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. They are to receive the people of God and the message of his gospel, or they are to be judged in the final judgment. As Mark has repeatedly made reference to, Jesus made his ministry headquarters in Capernaum, the town where Peter and Andrew lived at the time. Now, I should point out that in the Gospel of John, he refers to Bethsaida as the city of Peter and Andrew. And I would say to you that this is just as, just as Jesus was born in Bethlehem but became Jesus of Nazareth, so it is entirely likely that Peter and Andrew were born in Bethsaida and became Peter and Andrew of Capernaum. So both are true, and both are stated by different apostles, right? So both cities had a robust fishing industry, so they could apply their trade in Bethsaida or Capernaum. Capernaum was the great fishing capital of the time, right on the shores of the sea, the great lake there. My theory is that the brothers were cousins to James and John, sons of Zebedee. How's that for a theory? But that's what I think. I think Zebedee was the uncle to them. We know that they became business partners in Capernaum because the Bible says it repeatedly. So that could have been a likely reason for their short migration to the city later in their secular careers. We read from Luke, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. So we know that. Now, I only bring up this whole point because some of you are so smart that when I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about Capernaum being the city of Peter, you knew that Bethsaida was mentioned by John. So I bring this up to make sure that we have a way of reconciling these seeming contradictions. So let's get over the popular notion that Jesus is vying to be some kind, some kind of a democratic leader in the land, trying to get everybody to follow after him. He's not looking for consensus or high favorability ratings. He is a king, not a president. He is Lord, not a candidate for leadership. So we've got to get that view out of our head of the Lord. And so as one group demands he depart, another one gathers to meet him. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. Even their ruler Jairus, elder in the Capernaum synagogue, witness of healings and exorcisms in his own synagogue, had a great need to see him and a humble request for his services. Verse 22, 
And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. If Jairus wasn't previously a disciple, need can drive you to the feet of Jesus, especially if you've seen, heard the testimony and seen the healing. He fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Remember when Jesus went into the Nazareth synagogue? And he read from Isaiah about the Messiah, and he said, these words are fulfilled in your hearing, and they threw him out of the synagogue. Jairus didn't come to that place, but it's, it's, uh, we can probably assume that he wasn't immediately received by a man in high office in the, in, the, in the Hebrew establishment of the day. But Jairus, it seems now, is a believer. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed. Isn't it interesting? We make up the prescriptions. He says, lay your hands on her, right? The centurion said, oh, there's no need to come into my house. Just say a word. You know, we make up our own prescriptions, but our faith decides whether or not these things are going to be fulfilled or not, right? The woman said, I'll touch his garment. There's no doctrine that says touch his garment. If that was, if that was the case, none of us would be healed. Or we'd all be clamoring around to get to the Shroud of Turin to touch it. I just want you to know, I don't care about any of those things. I just want you to know that. Um, and so he says, come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with them, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. I got to go back to the Shroud of Turin thing for a minute. <laughs> In Reformation times, friends, there were artifact museums and great men with great money collected things. We we poke fun at it at the Reformation Fair, which, by the way, we should start talking about. I don't know what we're going to do this year, but if there's a little groundswell of interest, we should, we should talk about it and maybe a curtailed program. But they had museums. They would have things like a piece of the true cross. 1,500 years later, friends, I've been a carpenter all my life. Wood doesn't last that long, okay? It just doesn't. You put it in the ground, it becomes something else. You know what I'm saying? In fact, there's a thing called Hugel culture that some of us farmers use. And in, a, and in a bin, you can put logs and bark and stuff in the bottom and dirt on top. And after a year or so, there's no more logs down there. It's all now dirt. It doesn't take a thousand years for that to happen. You know what I'm saying? I don't care if there's something that looks like the ark up on Mount whatchamacallit. I, I just really don't care about that stuff. All right? And the Lord doesn't either you got to trust me on that. These are lesser concerns. Oh, if we find the ark, everyone will believe. Read the Gospels. Where was I, by the way? So Mark sets the scene well. Jairus comes out with the crowd, pleads for healing. While they're on the way, this woman comes out of nowhere, and Jesus has to give attention to her. The crowd's so thick and throng, they're moving along. Meanwhile, Jairus is standing there waiting for the Lord to come to his house. And he gets word the girl died, it's too late. That's why these two stories have to be told together. And so Mark sets up the scene well. The crowd has not seen enough of the Lord and wish to be with him again. So they're waiting there. They don't know why he went to Gadara. They don't, I don't think they know if he went to Gadara. Bethsaida was on the other side too. He could have gone there. They would have probably assumed that because what Jew would go to a land full of pigs? But he did. 
And so they were waiting, and they hope he comes back. We saw him leave from the spot, and they gathered and gathered over the time that he was gone. They didn't have enough of the Lord yet. They wanted to be healed by him. They wanted to be taught by him. They wanted to hear more of the word and of faith and of eternal life. They wanted all these things, so they clamored on the edge of the sea and saw the little boat come back. Now, as we've established already in the series, Jairus is known to these people. He didn't come out of nowhere. He's the leader in the synagogue in the community where Peter and Andrew worship every Friday night. Did you know it was Friday night? <laughs> Peter, and remember, for the, for the Jews, the Sabbath is on Saturday, and for the Jews, Saturday begins on Friday, just so we're clear. Peter and Andrew would have known him well, and so Jesus, who's already known in Capernaum for casting out a demon in a man at the synagogue who came for help, Mark is very chronological in pointing out how these miracles happen. He healed Peter's mother-in-law when he entered into the city. Um, he's known for the many healings and exorcisms. Um, as the multitudes gathered at Peter's house, remember, very famously, and they let the man down through the, through the roof, right? He was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. And casting out demons throughout all Galilee, friends. And as we noted last week, he healed a leper from Capernaum also. And so, it was fortuitous for Jairus that Jesus came back to the city where his own daughter was in such great need. Thank God he came back at this moment. And Jairus, who was by this time a disciple, had seen the power of God many times in Jesus He heard him preach. He saw him command evil spirits to depart. He saw the wholeness in those from whom they did depart. And now he's in need. And the Lord's come back to the city from the other side of the lake. And the multitude gathers around him. And they throng him, it says. And he agrees to help Jairus. And he sets off to his house with him. Friends, there were many needs in the crowd that day. You pick a crowd and there's many needs in that crowd. We go around with prayer requests in this small crowd and there's many needs in the crowd. And some we don't even bother to bring up because who can name all their needs? We have lots of needs. People are needy in this world. So Jairus was a prominent citizen as ruler of the synagogue. He received an immediate audience with the Lord. There were others in the crowd, though not so prominent, who had equally urgent needs And made equally zealous efforts to be seen by Jesus, to be pitied by Jesus, to be healed by him. And so we read verses 25 through 27. Now a certain woman, don't even know her name, had a flow of blood for 12 years. You think that's a curse? Try that in first century Israel. And she suffered many things from many physicians. She spent all that she had and was no better. Probably sent money to all those infomercials. It's all gone. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. I mean, what put that thought in her head? That was desperation. Now, I have to ask you this. Have you ever been in a crowd like that? Because as soon as I read this, I thought, I know what he's talking. I know what being thronged means. I looked it up, and it, and it is just what you think, that everyone's packed together, all right? But I mean, have you ever been in a place so crowded you didn't have control of where you might end up? Have you ever been there? A big crowd like that? 
It's like being in the sea and being swept by the tide. Now, I have a memory from a long time ago. I, I was trying to place it. I think it had to be 1980. And I was not a believer for, well, another five years or so. But I have a memory of being on Bourbon Street in New Orleans during the Mardi Gras. By the way, I'm not recommending it. The crowd was so thick that there were times, I swear, my feet were not even on the ground and my body was being swept from one place to the other. And I had a drink and I couldn't get it out because there was too, too many people. You didn't have control of yourself. Um, so we were swept by the crowd, by the, the current of humanity that I was immersed in. And I looked for my friends. I was with two friends. And they too were being controlled by this riptide. And we saw each other from afar. And we laughed over the moment. But there was no way I could get to my friends in this kind of crowd. It was just no, just no way of doing it. If either of us tried to get to the other, it would have been impossible. If the crowd were not so intent on having fun, this would have been a very frightening event. I think the crowd in Capernaum that day must have been quite like that. And it seems to me that that's what Mark's trying to get across to us. Everyone was touching Jesus and the apostles were right to say, how can you say, who touched me? And so they wondered how the Lord could ask such a thing. And so one person's need, friends, is as great a concern to the Lord as the other's need. All the while, Jairus is standing by, friends. All the while, he's standing by. He's waiting. He's worrying. He's suffering that the Lord might get to his daughter quickly before it's too late. It's quite like the case with Lazarus, isn't it? The Lord receives news of his sickness, tarried a few more days before arising, before arriving, rather, what seemed to the sisters too late to save him. He was already in the tomb four days. They wanted him there five days ago. They could have dispensed with the tomb. And they knew this. Now there's perhaps one other point to the story that Mark did not feel the need to explain to his first century Jewish audience. And that is that the woman in the story was probably trying to remain anonymous. She didn't want Jesus to see her or the other people to know she was there. She wanted to touch the garment, get healed, and go away. Now, why would that be? Because a flow of blood, even the monthly female cycle, was a time of personal uncleanness. All right? So from Leviticus, we read the law of the time. If a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Friends, she was in lockdown for her disease. She was not allowed in the public square. Touching stuff. The case of this woman was even more severe and so the law makes specific reference to her and to other women like her. We read this, same passage. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, in this case, 12 years, friends, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. She was ostracized, exiled from public exposure. That was the law. 
This woman spent 12 years under this legally imposed lockdown. She spent all her days in quarantine, probably in her little house alone, right? She lived knowing she was not fit for human contact. You can see the type of desperation this poor woman felt. We have to realize that this woman is little more than an outcast from society. She came into a public place out of desperation, friends. The law says, and I quote, everything that she lies on during her impurity is unclean. Everything she sits on, unclean. Everything she touches, her bed must be washed, bathed in water. Whoever touches anything she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water. Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. Pretty severe. There are reasons for it. I mean, they knew how disease spread. And so we see that it's no accident that this poor woman tried to remain hidden from sight. I believe she covered her face so as not to be recognized by anyone in this close-knit and closed community. She tried every available treatment incurred every affordable expense, and even beyond what she can afford, we're told. She probably had to sell stuff. Maybe she mortgaged her house. Who knows? And so out of complete agony and desperation, she made one last attempt at being healed. Like the man at the pool of Bethesda. 38 years. Gospel of John. He was waiting for the angel to stir the soup. And the first one in the soup gets healed, but of course, this guy's crippled. Someone's going to jump in before him, and no one's going to say, hey, let's give this guy a turn. He's been here 38 years. No one said it. So Jesus came by, basically, and said, don't worry about the pool. I'll take care of the healing. I think you've earned it. Friends, had this woman been found out, she could have been stoned for breaking the law, and I'm sure she feared that. She could have been stoned for infecting the populace. Her faith put life and death on the line. Friends, this was the last act she ever expected to happen. She would either get healed or get stoned. Her faith was stronger, though, than her desperation. And so it may be said that her faith secretly sucked the healing power of God out of the Savior, and the Savior felt it go forth from him. Matthew Henry called it a stolen blessing. I liked it so much I named the sermon a stolen blessing. I I should have named it Who Touched Me? But the stolen blessing thing just got me. She stole a blessing from Christ. And of course, he doesn't mean steal in the the bad sense. It's like when you you go up to the the tray of food and you say, can can I steal one of these? (laughs) You're not really stealing it. Um, And so he compared it with the blessing Jacob received clandestinely from Isaac. And I thought that was a very good point. Even after Esau revealed the fraud, it was too late, remember? Isaac couldn't see. So Jacob presented himself like Isaac, made himself feel and smell like, or like Esau, rather. And he goes up to Isaac, his father who was blind, and he gets the major blessing. He stole the blessing. And so Matthew Henry writes, the blessing was obtained surreptitiously and underhand, but it was secured and seconded above board. So was the cure. And so his old Isaac proclaimed to Jacob, he's blessed and he shall be blessed. So here she's healed and she shall be healed. Notice, she stole, you know, Jacob steals the blessing, but there's nothing Isaac can do about it. A blessing's a real thing, apparently, when you bestow it. So be careful about that. 
By the way, I'm of the opinion that Jacob and Rebekah did the right thing, and Isaac was on the road to doing the wrong thing. And I, I know that's controversial, but I throw it out there for you to get mad at me for later. So Jesus came out to Jesus too afraid and too embarrassed to ask for help. Or rather, she came out to Jesus too afraid and too embarrassed. Well, why shouldn't she be? Her faith led her to him in spite of her turmoil. And so she reasoned within herself that just a touch, just that nearness to Jesus would be the very thing that would release her from her prolonged agony and from her outcast status in society. And if not, she'd rather be executed for her presumption at this point. Does it remind you of something? How about Peter? Uh, after the Pentecost, he's, at the, he's in the temple complex and people just wanted to be in the shadow of the great apostle. They reasoned within themselves that if they came close enough to be in his shadow, they'd be healed. But she was not to be stoned. Her faith was above the law. God didn't strike her dead for breaking the law. He healed her for having faith. The law said stay away, but faith said come closer to Jesus. Now let's consider the Lord's question. Who touched me? Friends, there are many who have faith enough to assent to his existence. Right? You ask people who believe in Jesus, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in him. Many who might say he's a wise and powerful prophet. By the way, that's always those who are detracting from his true identity. They're limiting him. Well, he's very wise. He, had some, he, he said some good things. Too bad about what happened to him in the end, though. Huh? I mean, this is where some people are. Many are curious to see him after hearing so many stories about him. It's just a curiosity. Many, many, many who came to him while he was popular were nowhere to be found when he was being crucified. This woman was at the crucifixion. I will put my reputation on that. But only total faith, friends, which is complete surrender to him, can assure and heal and save. I think we've established this woman had total faith. This is not some little nominal momentary, I'll give Jesus a try moment. The disciples were right in observing that there were many touching him that day. Friends, there's probably many touching him unefficaciously today. What they learned that day is what we must learn. Only some touch him in such a way as to be delivered from our bondage and set free from our afflictions and finally internally saved from our sins. Only some touch him that way. Don't touch him with your many words and your repetitious phrases. Touch him with your faith in a deep place when it really matters to you. Because that's when it's real. This woman was desperate. This was complete surrender to Christ. I'd rather be killed than not be near him. And kill me trying to get there. Verse 30. Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out from him. Friends, he can feel it. He felt the power go out. Someone got healed. He could feel it. Who touched me? <laughs> there's no rule when Jacob stole his blessing, and there's no rule for this woman. You know, there's no theological rule that says, you know, 
put some goat hair on your arm so you seem hairy like your brother Esau, you know, and, and rub some uh, goat fat on you so you smell like a savory beast of the field, and then go up to your blind father and deceive him. That's the way you get blessed in life. No, that, there's no rule that says that. There's no rule that says come out sick in the crowd and sneak up and touch the garment of the Savior. There's no rule for that, friends. Faith is above the rule. And let me tell you, there's many a charlatan preacher who's used this ruse to sell prayer cloths to people, right? Healing oils. Get the special oil on TV, you've got a sale. Imagine getting your faith on sale. That's not the faith you want, friends. There's no such rule, but faith of this intensity makes its own rules. John wrote, this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is only so strong, friends, as the object of your faith. So why place faith in lesser things? Aim your faith in the direction of the right object. And so this very anonymous person receives her very public cure. And she receives a lesson and a proclamation from the Lord. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. And what did she do? I'll tell you what she did. She went back to her home and she washed everything. And she put on new clothes and she came out in public. And everyone knew that she'd been healed by Jesus that day. That's the one good thing about the crowd being there. No one's going to say, kill her! <laughs> they all heard by this time. By the way, this is a gossip community. That's, that's the news media of the day. You just hear it from other people. And so the story is told, friends. It's complete. But in all the excitement of the moment, we could all but lose the sight of old Jairus standing by waiting for his blessing while this poor, obscure woman received hers. Now, i got to tell you, and I, I ruminate about this, Jairus had to know this woman. He had to know what she'd gone through. He was the local pastor. He had to know and take part in the exile. He must have sat there and wondered, boy, Jesus heals by faith, not by law. The blessing should all but assure him that his Savior still has what it takes to heal his daughter, if only the Savior could get there in time. Matthew Henry wrote this. I like to quote Latin because you seem really smart when you say it in Latin. So Matthew Henry writes, post-mortem medicus. It means to call the physician after death. And he says, it's an absurdity, but not post-mortem Christus. To call in Christ after death may still be efficacious. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Thankfully, Jesus heard that. Imagine that. If Jesus didn't hear that, Jairus would have said, I have no more need of you. Don't trouble yourself. I have to wonder if there were any present that day who said to themselves, the teacher wasted time on this one insignificant woman when the great man's daughter was in dire need. Do you think someone thought that? He wasted time on this little woman when this great man's daughter was in dire need. What a, what a tragedy. He healed her instead of her. I wonder if that thought crossed Jairus' mind. I mean, it would have been natural. His daughter. We prefer our children over other people. Given what we know of the situation, we might conclude that Jairus, as a spiritual leader, might have felt complicit in the woman's sad estate. 
exiled for a health condition she was not responsible for. And so he waited patiently while the Savior tarried to meet the needs of the woman in his congregation. It may have been a great lesson for the ruler that day. I'm sure it was. We don't hear of Jairus saying, Lord, come quickly, deal with this woman later. She's breaking the law, but my poor little innocent daughter... We didn't hear that. Jairus had learned something here. Verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. Remember these words from John 11? Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out, met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she had her theology straight. Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She already had some pretty good theological chops going on there, didn't she? But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The day of resurrection is the day that I command it. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he said. And so we have the theology, and we have the challenge. I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? The theology and the challenge, the proclamation and the invitation, right? I am the life. Friends, this is always the question. Do you believe it? We may all find out in our time that all our life is given to us to answer this one question for ourselves. You think of all the things you've given your attention to over the years. All the things you've fretted over and worried over and striven for and rejoiced in. All for nothing if this one question isn't asked and answered. Do you believe? Verse 37, he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James' friends. The Lord does have favorites, and these three are his favorites. What Jesus is about to do is not a show for scorners or doubters. He doesn't want them there, sullying the moment. 38 and 39, he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead. She is sleeping. Friends, when the Savior arrives, the time for weeping and wailing is over. And he wants us to know that. And friends, i got to tell you, the Jews were very noisy weepers. All right? You heard of the banshees in the Irish community? You hire them to wail and weep when someone dies and make lots of noise and show of grief. Because sometimes a guy dies who people aren't really that grieved over. That's why they have them. Somebody there to grieve. Equal opportunity for everybody who dies. But their sorrow was not so great as their scorn, apparently. How sorry are you? You're going to ridicule the Lord. Well, the doctor, physician's here, but he seems pretty uh, unable to really do anything. Verse 40, and they ridiculed him. Another place said, and they ridiculed him to scorn. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Why wouldn't you do it that way? 
Only those who loved the girl and trusted the Savior were admitted. Verses 41 and 42. And he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise, Mark writes. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. I would imagine you would be. Now I can imagine the rumors that went around. She wasn't really dead. If she was really dead, he would have let us all in the room. You've got to imagine, that's what scorners do. They scorn. They find another reason to scorn, Right? We can only imagine that the doubters would say that. I suppose there was always the story floating around that she must not have been dead. But who can give life to the dead? Verse 43, he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. You know, this goes back to what was called the messianic secret. He kept telling everybody not to tell them where they got saved, but they did it anyway. They went out and proclaimed. He knew if you told them to do that, they, they couldn't hold it in, and they'd go out and tell. So this story went around, and it's been recorded by a couple of the evangelists. And it's just one of the wonderful intertwining of the gospel tales. The woman with the flow of blood and Jairus' daughter. Father, in Jesus' name, may we all seek and receive healing from the Lord. May we touch him effectually with our faith, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.